Let's pray together, beloved. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, what a, what a privilege and what a blessing that because of the atoning sacrifice of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we in this country can worship you corporately this way publicly and not be ashamed in any way, shape, or form or even persecuted, Lord, for worshiping you. And yet we know that many of our brethren in other countries are not in the same position. And Lord, they are living well to exalt you even there and making a stand for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for Christ who makes it possible in the midst of persecution to, uh, Lord, worship you. We know that he is the one mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for him. Thank you for the reminder today of how you've been working in the lives of your people for uh, Lord, throughout human history, and even, Lord, people bearing testimony out of their own lips of how you have taken them on a journey and then had a collision with Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for that. I pray that this morning you would make our hearts soft and tender to your holy word. Father, we know that every time we open up the Bible, it is holy scripture. It is every single word comes from your mouth. And so, Lord, we do not want to approach your word flippantly or in a passive way, but we want to Lord, be soft and tender in our hearts so that we would be eager listeners and eager um, appropriators, Lord, of your word, that we would apply these things to our, to our hearts and lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. And we'll see how far we get this morning. And we also have um, the right hand of fellowship coming up after the sermon. So, and that's okay. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. And this is the word of the living God. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict we have been talking about the qualifications necessary and non-negotiable for those who are to lead in God's church. Over and over again, Paul tells Titus and then Timothy when he writes in the parallel passage of 1 Timothy chapter 3 that these qualifications must be true of those who are to lead in the church. They're non-negotiable. And we saw that the overarching, all-encompassing qualification that an elder is to meet is given to us at least twice in this passage explicitly in verse 6, if you notice there, that this man who is to be an elder is to be above reproach. And then in verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. And we talked about the fact that above reproach doesn't mean that the man is going to be perfect. Nobody is. That he's going to be without blemish. Nobody is. That he must um, always, at a high level, have this type of character without any fault or struggle. We know that every single person struggles. 
But this overarching, all-encompassing qualification of above reproach means that he not be guilty or found guilty of anything in his personal life, heart and um, uh, uh, conduct, that would bring reproach upon the name of Christ and his church. Above reproach. Then in verses 5 through 9, really we see how uh, 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 Paul defines for us, as he writes to Titus, what above reproach means. First of all, we saw in verse 6 that the elder is to be above reproach with regards to his family relationships. With regards to his marriage specifically, that he is to be a man who is devoted to his wife. That he is faithful to her in heart and in his conduct. And with regards to his children, that his children are to be characterized by submission and obedience to their parents. Even as God may be working in their hearts for saving faith, they are to be characterized by submission and obedience under parental authority. Now today we want to look at the second category of these qualifications, that the elder is to be above reproach with regards to his relationship to himself, by which I mean his personal character. In Scripture, over and over we are reminded that all of God's people are to be concerned about character, beginning from the cultivation of our hearts, to have a heart for God, and then that fleshes itself out in the way that we live in godly conduct. And that is especially true of of leaders, that leaders who are to set the example and the tone in the church are to be concerned about exemplary character in their personal lives. If you turn back just a couple of pages to 1 Timothy chapter 4, we see Paul writing to Timothy, a pastor uh, at Ephesus, about his, the need for Timothy to be concerned about his character. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Timothy, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Timothy had a special calling, and it was confirmed by those leaders around him. He says in verse 15, take pains with these things, and that these things are the instructions that he's given Timothy in the letter the type of conduct that, be, that befits people transformed by the gospel and how the church is to conduct itself. He says, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. I am comforted by that word progress, that Timothy is to continue to grow. He's not complete as a man of God. He is to be progressing so that his life bears witness to a man who has been transformed by the gospel. He is to progress. Verse 16, pay close attention to yourself, that is his personal character, and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will uh, ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Timothy was to be concerned for his personal example, his character, and his teaching must be unadulterated. He must be taking care of who he is before God and before other people so that he doesn't bring reproach upon Christ. And so it is, beloved, that for everyone, and especially the man of God, he is to cultivate a type of character in both his teaching and his example as he lives out the truth of the Word of God before the church so that people will will look at this example and follow suit as well. As he follows Christ, so they follow his example. Elders must be men who do this. This is non-negotiable. To be a man of character. Now, 
This is different when we talk about character than worldly type of the pursuit of character. We're not talking here about character as the world sees it, manufactured or produced by oneself for the purpose of selfish pursuits, of attaining maybe a position or a type of notoriety before the world. And we're also not talking about the type of character that brings glory to oneself as the world would be pursuing character. But this is character that is made possible and propelled by the grace of God in our lives. The fact that we have been saved by God's grace teaches us that we ought to be moved to this type of character in light of the saving grace of God upon our lives. And I want you to see this in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. Titus chapter 2 actually in verse 11. Paul says this on the heels of instructions in chapter 2 to the various members of the body of Christ and how they need to be conducting or behaving themselves. And he says this in chapter 2 verse 11. This is why you need to conduct yourselves, members of the church, in, the, in a godly manner. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. In other words, the reason why they were to conduct themselves this way is because of the saving grace of God in their lives. Not so that they could be by their conduct or their pursuit of character justified in the eyes of God. Not so that by their own works and human merit or the way that they conducted themselves, they might find acceptance before a holy God for the standard is perfection. And these believers knew that. They were to conduct themselves in this way because of the saving grace of God that had already taken place in their hearts and lives. It brought salvation to them. And we know how God's grace appeared on this earth. It's personified in Jesus Christ himself who came in human history uh, as planned before the foundation of the world by God the Father to die for sinners in the place of sinners, substituting for sinners so that by faith we can be saved. He says, because of that grace of God, that, that grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, this is the reason why you ought to be conducting yourselves in this way and pursuing that type of character in your life. And then what does that grace of God also do? Not only does it bring salvation to all men, verse 11, and we know that that all men is not everybody, but those who trust in Jesus Christ alone, not in their works and their human merits, but in the merits of Jesus Christ that has brought salvation to them. And then he says in verse 12, that same grace, notice, instructs us. That's the word from which we get disciple. Instructs us, that grace does, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present world. So the grace that saves, verse 11, by faith, it's the grace that instructs us, verse 12, to deny ungodliness, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and to be pursuing godliness for the glory of God, not for selfish glory or for notoriety in the eyes of the world. And not only that, but verse 13, that same grace allows us to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Notice, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us, that means buy us out of the marketplace of sin, from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. The saving grace of Christ instructs us to holiness and it also allows us, verses 13 and 14, to anticipate the return of Christ as we live out godliness in this life. So my point, beloved, is that this is a character 
that is only made possible by the saving grace of God and that, is, that propels us to live this kind of life before others, that we might be an example. This is true for, of all Christians, that we have to be propelled by the grace of God to holy living and to godliness. But it is especially to be true of the shepherds of God's church. The church needs, beloved, to see grace at work first and foremost in her shepherds. Shepherds who are weak and needy, but who love Jesus and want to be like Jesus and who are able to say by the grace of God, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ by grace, by grace, by his sustaining grace. Now we've seen that in God's church leaders are called elders or pastors, which really is the word for shepherds, elders, pastors, and at times these leaders are called overseers, which if you look at chapter 1, verse 7, that's how Paul now, um, that's what Paul calls elders, overseers. Pastors, elders, overseers, terms that are all referring to the same office in the Christian church are the leaders of God's church. And overseers, in verse 7, is the word episkopos, which really refers to one charge with the responsibility of watching over the spiritual needs of God's church. And notice in verse 7, the overseer who watches over the spiritual needs of God's church must be above reproach as God's steward, he says. What is a steward? It refers to a household manager, to one who manages the estate and the affairs of his master, to one who is left in charge and he is committed to carrying out the wishes of the, of the owner. And so as Paul writes to Titus and instructs him as to the qualifications of leaders, here's a reminder embedded here in this text that the church doesn't belong to elders or to leaders. We are simply God's stewards, verse 7. God's stewards, household managers of that which belongs to God. God purchased the church by the blood of his own son. The church belongs to God. It doesn't belong to any Christian. It doesn't belong to any leader. The church belongs to God. And we are merely stewards as leaders, household managers of God's family, of God's home. And this is why these qualifications are so crucial because leaders are to shepherd God's church. And if they are to do this, then they must be equipped with these specific qualifications here because they are the caretakers and stewards of God's church. Such as when you leave your kids with a babysitter and you expect, your expectation is that that babysitter or caretaker is going to follow and enforce your rules as to their conduct in as they take care of your kids and as to the conduct of your children. They are to enforce your household rules. Well, so it is in the church. The church doesn't belong to leaders. God has given us a blueprint for our conduct as leaders and for your conduct as a church. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you and I think. If it is different than what the Word of God says, we are called under the Lordship of Christ to submit ourselves to what the Word of God says. Amen? Because this is His church. And as His church, He defines the character of the elder, pastor, overseer, who is God's steward. And so what we see here, beloved, in regards to the man's relationship to himself, are five vices that he must reject and six virtues that he must exemplify if he is to lead in the church. Five vices to reject and six virtues to exemplify, which show whether this man is above reproach 
and equipped to lead in the church. And we'll see how far we get through these, okay? Maybe we look at the five vices to reject today and the six virtues to exemplify next week. And I want to make a point here before we look at these five vices to reject, okay? Please look at these from the standpoint, not just how these character qualities affect you personally. You know, in our American Christianity, we constantly do that. We live in a very individualistic society, and everything becomes just how it applies to me, my freedom, my rights, my privileges, my priorities, irrespective of people around us. But as Christians, we are not to adopt that same mentality. Yes, first and foremost, the Christian life is personal because we have to make a decision to trust in Jesus so that we might be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God. But it is not private. It is not private. We've been saved unto a community. We have been saved from slavery to sin and damnation so that we are now a part of God's life, fellowship with God, and fellowship with other people, a part of a community of believers. And so we have to look at these qualities, both the vices and the virtues, from the standpoint not just about how they affect us personally, but also for how our conduct, beloved, either hurts or helps those in the church And that begins with us as leaders, that our conduct as leaders impacts, hurts, or helps the people of God. And you as believers who are called to follow the example of elders, your conduct hurts or helps other people around you in a tremendous way. And so these are non-negotiable for leaders, but are to be true of what we all strive for, because it has direct bearing upon whether it will hurt or help people around you as well. So I want you to think about that as we look at some of these, okay? And we'll try to bring some of that out. Now, verse 7 outlines the five vices that the man who is to lead in the church is to reject. Notice first and foremost that he is to be a man, verse 7, if you look there, who is not self-willed. The shepherd of the God's church is not to be known or characterized as a self-willed individual. I like the translation, selfishly stubborn. The man who is willful. The man who is stiff-necked. This is the, the selfish man who is, who is so focused and so fixated upon his own opinions and his rights and his agendas that he doesn't listen to anyone around him. He doesn't value anyone else's input or opinions or feelings. He is not a team player because team players are focused also on listening to others around them. This man is so focused on pleasing himself. He is inflexible and stubborn with regards to change in God's church. How dangerous is self-willfulness in the church, especially for a leader, but for all of us? Well, self-willfulness is a characteristic of false teachers. According to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 10, Peter says there to believers that false teachers are characterized by those who despise authority. They're daring and self-willed. That means they're self-driven by their own agendas and their own opinions, placing little value on people around them and what others think. Self-willfulness also is what characterizes our wicked generation. It describes our world. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says to Timothy that in the last days, and if it was the last days in the first century when he was writing to Timothy, how much more is it the last days today? In the last days, he says, this is what, what will characterize the last days. Difficult seasons will come for men will be lovers of self, he says, lovers of self. And he also says, 
uh, chapter 3, verse 2. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. That means that they don't reconcile relationships. They will be malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That is what Paul, writing to Timothy, says that the last days will be characterized by. Sounds like our society, doesn't it? Well, one of the characteristics is that men will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. That means they're in it for their own self-worship. They don't defer to others. They don't serve other people. And yet as Christians, beloved, we know that having placed our faith in Jesus Christ and now being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, we are to be people who are the completely the opposite. We are to be others-focused. First of all, doing the will of our Heavenly Father and then doing the will of others if it is in conformity to the Word of God. Serving other people. The Lord Jesus taught His disciples in, when He walked on this earth that they ought not to be like the Gentile rulers. The rulers who lorded over people, who were self-willed individuals, they were only concerned about their own religious agenda, devoid of heart. He says, don't be like those guys. Instead, he told them, be servants of all and slaves of all. Put the needs of others before yourself. And he was only encouraging them to follow his lead, wasn't he? What did Jesus do? Condescended, left his father's throne above He laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes to come to earth, to clothe himself with humanity, being fully God himself. He wrapped himself in humanity and he showed us humility by selflessly dying for sinners on the cross so that you and I can have hope. He did it for the good of others, beloved. He did it for to fulfill his father's will, laying down his life for people. And likewise, the man who is to lead in the church is to be Christ like that way. To be a a man who is humble, who is others-oriented, who is willing to defer, who is not self-willed and just concerned about what he wants. We must never forget that the church doesn't belong to us. That goes for leaders first and foremost, beloved, and that goes for all of us as believers, as Christians, so that we become others-focused when we realize, you know what? Ultimately, it is about you, Lord. These are your people, and it doesn't matter at the end of the day what I want. I want to submit myself to your word in serving my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the attitude that we, cl- that we the kind of mindset that we ought to have. Secondly, notice in verse 7, he is not to be a quick-tempered man. A quick-tempered man. You know, everyone can fall short in this area. I'm sure if I would have asked for a raise of hands, a show of hands, every single one of us can think of a time in our lives or times in our lives when we have lost our temper. Amen? But this is the man who is in a state. I didn't hear a very thunderous amen there, huh? <laughs> Guess I'm the only one that struggles with this kind of stuff. All right, fine. If you guys want to be like that. <laughs> this is the man, beloved, however, or the person, you might say, that is prone to anger or wrath toward others as a, as a consistent, settled state. This is the person who is quickly pushed, pushed over the line. And when he experiences difficulties, his norm is to flare up with anger toward others. How does this vice, quick-temperedness, um, connect to the previous one of being self-willed? 
Well, think about it. If the man who is self-willed and selfish, when he doesn't get what he wants or, or people don't follow what he thinks should happen, what does he do? He resorts to lashing out, to anger toward others who disagree with him. Maybe it shows itself explicitly in some of us where we lash out at people, but for others of us, we get angry as well. And what do we do? We just uh, kind of passively quit altogether. Like the proverbial toddler who, who, who gets mad and then takes his toy somewhere else to play with somebody else, right? That's what some of, how some of us can respond. Well, the man who, who, who um, is characterized by this type of quick temperance is not fit to serve in the church of God. Ultimately, anger and quick temperedness, I'm sure you would agree with this, shows that we don't trust God enough, Right? It shows our lack of trust in the Lord. Because instead of entrusting things to God and prayerfully waiting upon the Lord to work in the hearts of people that perhaps we're trying to convince of something in the Word of God or other that may be right, instead of trusting that God will work in their hearts and lovingly appealing to them, what do we do instead? We take matters into our own hands and we respond with anger and frustration toward people. You can see why this is dangerous for any of us, right? But especially for elders. The man who is quick-tempered will not promote unity and peace in the church of God, beloved. He will simply not lead the charge in there. Why? Because everything is personal. Everything uh, is an opportunity for him to become easily offended. Everything is an opportunity for him to become defensive. He doesn't listen. He jumps to conclusions. And when he gets angry, his anger clouds his thinking. And instead now of acting on behalf of God's people, he acts on behalf of himself and his own agendas and priorities. That's how it fleshes itself out. He puts his dukes up and now it's time for a fight. It's time for a a law court scene, right? Courtroom where he's going to defend his position. Well, that doesn't lead to peace and unity, does it? In contrast... What are leaders called to model? Patience and gentleness in our dealings with others? Remembering that we too are sinners and that, and that God is patient with us as leaders? So patience and gentleness. That is what should characterize the shepherd because he understands that change takes time just as change takes time in our own hearts and lives, right? Right? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 says that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So convicting what he says there, and yet so true. And he says, able to teach. I think what he means in there in the context of division or, 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 um, or um, uh, uh, difficulty is that he is able to teach to the point where he's able to show somebody in the flock as the Lord's bondservant um, what is the right thing to do with a shepherd's heart. With a shepherd's heart. That is the way that leaders are to approach people in the body of Christ. Patient, gentle, leading them and showing them from the word of God what is right. Look at verse 7, not addicted to wine. He is not to be addicted to wine. Paul writes the same prohibition in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3 to Timothy. He says that leaders are not to be addicted to wine. 
This refers to not, uh, one who is not one alongside of wine, literally. As if to say that this man is not the companion or the friend in an intimate way of strong drink. It refers to one who sits long over his wine, thus drinking to excess and becoming drunk or intoxicated. The point here is not the prohibition of strong drink, but that the elder is not to be a man who is, who is controlled by strong drink, who is ruled by it, who is dominated by strong drink. Rather, he is to be a man who is clear-headed, who is sober-minded. He is to be a man who maintains God's priorities and be alert and sensitive to the needs of the flock. And if he's intoxicated, whether by strong drink or other things, he won't be soft and tender to the needs of the flock. Such sobriety is to be true of all believers, according to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul says to believers, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. And dissipation refers to wild, uncontrolled, reckless behavior. Don't be intoxicated or dominated by wine, for that is wild, uncontrolled, reckless behavior. That's what it will lead to. But, he says, instead be filled with the Spirit. Present tense, be continually characterized by the Spirit of God, by being led and dominated by the Spirit of God. To be filled with the Spirit means to be guided, to be led by the Spirit. And how do we yield to the Spirit's leading in our lives, beloved? Not by uncontrolled, chaotic, or, or some ecstatic emotional experience as we learn in some of our wider evangelical circles, but we are Spirit-led by regular exposure and intake to the Word of God. And then responding in obedience to the Word of God. That's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. In other words, let the Word of Christ saturate yourself so much that the Word has found its heart, its, its home in your heart and life. And in so doing, as we're filled with thoughts of God from His Word, as we, as we are reflecting upon His promises and His Word, we are sensitive to the Spirit's leading as the Spirit is showing us and guiding us in life. So the man of God is to be a spirit-filled man, not a man addicted to wine, controlled by other things such as wine. Notice in verse 7, fourthly, he is not to be pugnacious. Not to be pugnacious. Literally, he's not to be a striker or a fighter. The word pugnacious is related to the word that you may be familiar with, the word pugilist, which refers to a boxer. To a boxer. And this points to the fact that the man who is to lead in the church is not to be known as a violent man. A violent man who responds hastily and strikes back at those who oppose him. Or those who disagree with him. Or those who don't see his point of view. Like a viper striking back at them. He is not to be known as that kind of violent man. He is not a man who settles accounts or wants to settle accounts by physical force or verbal intimidation to win an argument. That's especially uh, uh, difficult for us as men, right? God has wired us to want to make a defense and want to protect. And brothers, we need to be very careful that we're not driven in that courage that God has called us to, to use that courage and, and express it in a way that is fleshly, where it's just about winning an argument and putting somebody in their place or verbally intimidating them. And that goes true for the way that we lead in our homes, that we are not doing that and taking those kinds of, of uh, pursuing that kind of methodology with our wives and our children. 
It begins in the home and it fleshes itself out in the context of the church as well. I still remember and have images in my head growing up as a little boy in elementary and junior high when we attended um, membership meetings. Churches growing up, a couple of churches at least, and people getting up in the middle of the membership meeting and starting to yell at each other from across the sanctuary. And even two elders at one point, having uh, people needing to restrain them because they were going to go at it with each other. Physically, they were going to fight with each other. Those men turned out not to be even Christians. But they were fleshly. They had different points of view, and they were going to duke it out physically if need be. A friend of mine a couple of years ago, a missionary, shared with me the sad story of some division in their church in this foreign country and how it got so bad that in one of the membership meetings that was supposed to be a unifying time for the whole church, one of the, after, after the, everybody was dismissed, the elders stood in the back as people exited just to give personal contact, eye contact to the people and show them and express their love to them. And one of the members actually punched one of the elders in the nose and broke the elder's nose. Well, how did it get to that point? How did it get to that point, beloved? Well, this member had, had been cultivating and petting internal, seething bitterness and stewing uh, over the offenses committed against him in particular and his family. He hadn't forgiven people. He hadn't reconciled to people. And it led him to be pugnacious, to even strike at one of his shepherds. That can happen to any of us, beloved. None of us are above that. Were it not for the grace of God? So a pugnacious man cannot serve as an elder because elders, again, are to be those who lead in promoting peace and unity in the church. Elders, listen, elders and leaders are called to model the reconciliation that we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do? He came to earth to facilitate, to be the mediator between us and uh, between men and God initiating the possibility that we can be reconciled to our maker by faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To accomplish reconciliation, Jesus came. And now as those who are at peace with God by faith in Jesus, we have to now flesh out and exemplify conduct, beloved, with one another and our dealings with one another where we are at peace with one another and we cultivate reconciling relationships where there is forgiveness, where there is a laying aside of those things that maybe we could fight for and might be our rights, but we're willing to defer to others for the sake of peace because we have a, a, a higher thing that we know that is at stake, and that is the gospel progress on this earth. And if we are not unified and if we are not pursuing peace and reconciliation with one another, then the gospel will be thwarted to some capacity or another in our lives. So leaders lead the charge. And that kind of reconciling work. Notice also in verse 7. He is not to be known for one who is fond of sordid gain. This refers to greedy or shameful gain. This is the man who is internally motivated by greed, by a covetous heart, who is never content. And in order to achieve what he sinfully wants, he exploits people to get it. He deceives God's people who belong to God the people that he purchased with his own blood, he is not afraid of exploiting them. He takes advantage of them for the sake of even money or material gain. This was already happening on the island of Crete. That's why chapter 1 verses 10 through 16 are going to focus on, on Titus 
equipping or, or appointing elders so that elders go after these guys in verses 10 through 16 who are arising from within and coming in from without. False teachers who are exploiting the people who do things, according to verse 9, for the sake of sordid gain, or verse 11 rather. They're known, these teachers, for, for doing things for the sake of sordid gain, for their own shameful desires, to fulfill their own shameful desires. Beloved, all we have to do is look at the society around us to see this, these types of individuals. Just turn on the popular evangelical channels on television, fooled, by the way, of non-Christian false teachers. These are not believing men. T.D. Jakes, Benny Hinn, Crefro Dollar, Joel Osteen, some people's favorites. They are preaching counterfeit gospels. They are not the true gospels. They preach the so-called prosperity gospel, which tells people that Jesus guarantees them money and possessions and happiness. If we just put our faith in Jesus, he is waiting, waiting, waiting to give us everything that we want on this earth, even cars and mansions and everything, and great resort places all over the world that we can go to all year long. Is that the true gospel? No, it's not the true gospel. It is a counterfeit gospel. It is a false gospel. And Paul says, appoint elders who are going to refute these guys and are going to reprove these guys because ultimately that is what love is, to protect God's people from people who are going to come in and exploit them that way. That's why elders are to be qualified to handle the word, as we're going to see in the next couple of weeks as well, to protect the church from these types of people. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. It says, free from the love, oh, flee from the love of money, Paul says to Timothy. Flee from the love of money. That's what drives a lot of false teachers. Men who are in it to exploit the people of God, to exploit true believers, Christians, because they love money at the heart. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says that the love of money, notice he doesn't say money is the root of all sorts of evil, but the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And listen to this, and some by longing for it, longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, he says. Flee from these things. Instead, what is the man of God to do? According to Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20, he's to cultivate contentment in the heart as Paul did. He says, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things by which he meant contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul learned and cultivated contentment. And the man of God who is to lead in the church must fight and struggle to have and cultivate contentment. So note... As God's steward, the elder must be known or characterized or not be characterized by these five vices. It's not that he's going to be perfect. It's not that he's going to be sinless. It's not that he's not going to struggle or fall short in these areas. But this must not be his reputation as he leads in the church by God's grace. And you can never go wrong with just looking at Jesus and his example, right? Following the example of Christ. Just think about our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the ultimate example of one who was not self-willed. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
He came not to do his own will, but the will of his Father on earth, which was to redeem sinners, to die on the cross for sinners who repent and believe in him. Jesus came not to do his own will, but the will of God. Our Lord was not quick-tempered, but what was he in the midst of opposition and ridicule and reviling for being a just, blameless man? He was an example of gentleness and meekness towards those who opposed him and those who hated him. Our Lord was not fond of sordid gain, but he used the little that he had as far as material possessions and taught his disciples to, to give to the needy and to the poor and, and invest their, their resources into the kingdom of God. Our Lord Jesus was the perfect righteous example, beloved, of a good shepherd. And his under-shepherds must imitate his example if we are to glorify God and benefit God's people. Jesus is the example. And remember that you as a congregation as well, as we think about these vices and, late, and next week, these, the, the virtues that we are to exemplify. If you are called to follow the example of shepherds as they follow Christ, then these things must be true of you as well. You must be a person who exhibits selflessness. You must be a person who is not quick-tempered, but you're quick to be gentle and meek toward each other. You are not to be a person who is to be intoxicated, whether by wine or whatever in life, but you are to be dominated and controlled by the word of God as you fill your mind with Holy Scripture. You are not to be a person who is fond of sordid gain, but using what God has given you, even if little or much, for the advancement of the kingdom of God here on this earth, beloved. So all of us are called to this type of character, to these type of virtues. Well, we're out of time. Next week, we'll get into the virtues that we are to exemplify as leaders and that are to be true of all of us as a church. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, such weighty things. Father, I stand here as one not who has attained these things, Lord, to perfection at all, but one who by the grace of God is striving to be this kind of man. Father, I pray that that would be our attitudes as well that we might remember that the grace of God makes it possible and propels us to be able to live this type of life. Help us not to pursue these things for self-glory. Help us not to pursue these things, Lord, because we want notoriety in the eyes of others. Help us to pursue these things because they glorify you and because we have hearts full of gratitude and thanksgiving for what you have done in having saved us and having rescued us from the domain of darkness so that now we pursue Christ's likeness for your glory and by your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.